You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, I, I was doing a cybersecurity engagement uh, for a large Silicon Valley company that you, whose name you know that I can't talk about. But after a 12-hour day on the cybersecurity engagement, we were at the hotel uh, lounge uh, over beers. And I was talking with my collaborator, Noah Rubin, who is one of the smartest programmers I've ever known. And I said, Noah, you know how we can brute force passwords? And he said, yeah. I said, what if we could What if we could hack music? What if we could make every single melody? And uh, and Noah said, F yeah, I think we should do that. So within, uh, within a few hours, he had created a prototype that had spit out, uh, I think, 3,500 melodies. Uh, and so uh, so we kept refining that. And uh, and I thought, boy, this is kind of a fun proof of concept uh, to be able to do. But then as more I thought about it, I thought about the George Harrison case. And I thought about the problem in copyright that this might be able to solve. So the, um, so a cybersecurity engagement in front of a, a Silicon Valley company whose name I can't say uh, was the genesis of this thing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here, as always, with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. And we got another smart person to come on our show. Yeah, this week we have Damian Real, who created the All the Music Project. He did a fantastic TED Talk that uh, maybe we'll link here. I'm not sure, Corey. <laughs> but go check it out if you we haven't will, yet. We will link. The link is we in will the link description, it. yes. Wait, I have a question, guys. Are we a real podcast now? Because we've had Grammy We're Award winners. We're getting frighteningly close to becoming a real podcast. Yeah. We had a mayor of a town. <laughs> we had a guy that did a TED Talk. I mean, uh, that's pretty serious. And, th- and this they all guy- seem to enjoy it. We're fooling people, apparently. <laughs> He, well, Damien, who came on this week, you know, I, I, I found him because of IFL science. And, you know, he was joking around how he was, you know, talking to me. And he's like, oh, these idiots don't understand what I'm doing. And for the next hour, he explains what he's doing. And if you don't know what it is, you should listen. Because if you if you write music, this guy's important. Yeah. So for anyone interested in, yeah, melody, copyright, some of the legal sides of music, this is a great episode for you. Don't forget to go to 2020-d.com to like and subscribe. But for now, let's listen to Damien Real right now. Hi, my name is Benny Goodman. And I am here with my friends, Corey and Siobhan, and I am so excited because I I went on the interweb, I saw an article about something that seemed very incredulous to me, which is a word for not likely, and um, it was about the music industry, about copyright law. Now, I know you want to turn it off because that sounds boring, but I swear... I, I went down the rabbit hole with our guest, Damien Real, and may I add... The guy has a TED Talk, so if you don't trust my intro, go on the internet and see that he actually has a TED Talk, and then everything he's probably about to say has been verified by other third-party sources. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. Damien, it's so great to have you on the show, and I guess I'll jump in with my first question. Um, as someone that I studied music, and I did want to go to law school at one point, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you kind of got those two varying interests, and what made you decide to go more in the law direction, and how you, you know, that, that sort of path from beginning to end? 
Sure. I, I've been a lawyer since 2002. I litigated for a large law firm, represented Bernie Madoff victims, sued JP Morgan over the mortgage-backed security crisis. So I, I had a long legal career, but I'm also a coder since 1985. Uh, and so I've been coding since then, uh, but I'm also a musician. That is, I have a bachelor's degree uh, in 1997 in music. So uh, the law plus technology plus uh Plus, music is something that's been part of my life since 1985, uh, and this led to the project that we're going to be talking about. That's amazing. Did you grow up with a musical family? Like, what made you gravitate towards music and studying it, like at the college level? I, I was, I was a, a singer. Yeah, my family sang, and we sang at church and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've always been a musician, and uh, it turns out that uh, you don't need to be that smart to be a lawyer. So that's what led me to the law. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, when I when I did some internships at law firms, a lot of them were like, oh, you're a musician. You should definitely do that. It'll be more fun. But I think law is fascinating. So I think it's so cool that you've kind of brought everything together and, you know, all these projects that you've done. Yeah. Two of my, two of my, when I was a student teaching to be a choir conductor, uh, two of my tenors started punching each other in the face in the middle of the choir. And I thought, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll go to law school instead of uh, teach choir. That's incredible. Or maybe stave off hunger, because I feel like as a musician, it's very hard to make any kind of living. So did you just decide maybe I want to have a family and take care of myself and have a regular medical plan and all of those things? Those are all accurate statements. Yes. Yeah. So when you decided to go to law school, what was your initial thought of what type of law you wanted to study? Did you know it would have something to do with 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 any sort of musical projects or like, did you feel that coming or was it totally unrelated? Yeah, I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. I wanted to represent artists. And this is in the late 1990s. And so, of course, there was a music industry where you could represent artists and uh, there was money to be made there. Of course, not so much anymore. But uh, little did I know that only uh, about 20 years later, I would be actually uh, helping uh, make the music industry better uh, with the project I'm doing. We're going to talk about in a second here. Yeah. Well, maybe let's introduce that project for anyone that hasn't watched your TED Talk. I mean, definitely go check that out. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, the All Music Project and how that came to be? Sure. Uh, the All the Music Project is essentially um, what we did is much like you can brute force a password. Uh, well, I guess the short story is we made 470 billion with a B melodies uh, that we copyrighted. And the way we did that is much like you can take a password and brute force it by going A, 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 B, A, C until it hits your password. We've done that with music. So what we did is we went do 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 re do 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 me do 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 fa until we mathematically exhausted every melody that's ever been and every melody that ever can be mathematically to the tune of 470 billion melodies all written to disc. Uh, as soon as they're written to disc, they're copyrighted automatically. Uh, and so then what we've done is we copyrighted 470 billion uh, melodies and then placed them all in the public domain uh, so that uh, the You Stole My Melody defendants could be able to use our project as a defense uh, to their lawsuits, to be able to help them in unjust uh, lawsuits like that. That's interesting. Can you explain to explain to us lay people how something is automatically copyrighted? Like, so putting this aside, let's say if you are sitting at your computer and you come up with a melody or a, a short form of a song and you share it, and then all of a sudden somebody else decides they're going to take something from that. Is your original thing automatically copyrighted by you recording it to a disc? Yeah. And uh, under the, uh, the Berne Convention is what the law is called. It's something that it's an international treaty that the United States uh, uh, joined in the late 1980s. But under the Berne Convention, as soon as something is written, uh, fixed to a tangible medium, that's the word, like as soon as you scribble something on a piece of paper, as soon as you put it on a hard drive, as soon as you do anything with the music, uh, record it uh, in, in a recording, it's already automatically copyrighted. You don't need to file it with the Copyright Office. Um, if you do file it with the Copyright Office, you get some additional uh, things like lawyer's fees and that kind of thing. Uh, and some courts require you to register before you sue somebody. Uh, but uh, you don't need to do that for copyright to affix. So really, as soon as our 470 billion melodies were uh, written to disc, they were copyrighted automatically under the Berne Convention. 
Well, it was really interesting because I, I saw that you're, you're, you're referring to melodies as almost like a natural resource. And the way that I, when I heard you talking about it, you're like, we're running out of melodies. And I feel like I, I, I was in an alternate universe. I'm like, they're running out of melodies. But then you explain, because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, there's only eight notes. There's only so many things that you can do. And in fact, we had a previous guest on that said, if you were making new music, like genuinely new music, you wouldn't recognize it as music because it's already been done. Can you explain that to people? Because, you know, plagiarism is something I got kicked out of high school for. Could I have just had you as my lawyer and I would have been fine? So an, an example. So really what we're trying to avoid with the project is accidentally stepping on uh, somebody else's melody. So, for example, Katy Perry got sued over a melody that was literally this. Dun, 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 dun. Um, apparently flame, uh, had the same dun, 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 dun. Okay. She got dinged for $2.7 million in a jury verdict over that incredibly simple melody, just a descending scale that Siobhan, uh, you know, probably thinks you're just going from the tonic and going down, uh, to the seventh and to the sixth, right? That's, that's, uh, really ridiculous. So anyway, we're going to get a uh, copyright strike on this video because you sang that now. (laughs) Thankfully, (laughs) thankfully you won't because uh, uh, the court reversed the jury verdict. Uh, and that, uh, that actually happened after my Ted talk. Uh, so, uh, so what happened? Uh, So, so the, the jury verdict happened on a Tuesday. Uh, my TED talk happened on a Saturday, the following Saturday. And I used her TED talk, that melody in my thing. And uh, what I didn't I mention. That, yeah. Yeah. What I didn't mention in the TED talk is that melody dun, 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 shows up in my 68 billion uh, melody data 8,125 times. Uh, so so essentially, she got dinged $2.8 million over something that my computer crapped out at 300,000 melodies per second. Um, it spit it out. So in in a millisecond, my computer spit this thing out. But she, uh, but Flame, the guy who sued uh, Katy Perry, wanted to have a monopoly on that thing that got spit out in a millisecond. He wanted a monopoly for his life plus seventy years. Um, and so, really, what I argued in my TED talk, and really what um, what I think maybe swayed the judge, perhaps, is that maybe that thing is not a creative thing. Maybe it is so unoriginal, so mathematical. Uh, that is not copyrightable in the first place. So jury verdict happened on Tuesday. My TED Talk happened on a Saturday, was released to the world in January of 2020. Then in March of 2020, uh, the judge reversed the jury verdict and said, essentially, my argument that it is so unoriginal, that is so factual, that is so uh, easily done, that uh, that is not copyrightable. And importantly, that decision that happened in March of 2020 reversed the previous her previous decision where she said, I can't decide this as a matter of law. She said that earlier in, uh, I think, 2018. Then in March of 2020, she said, as a matter of law, uh, this uh, this is not copyrightable. So essentially, post my TED Talk, uh, it seems to have had some effect. There's correlation versus causation. Maybe I didn't uh, cause it, but there's certainly correlation. Well, explain this to me. Is this, explain this to me. So is this, what you're saying is that your computer is 8,152 times smarter than um, Katy Perry <laughs> and that uh, computers are just going to replace us all because we're all basic and uh, there's no reason for me to even be writing music because your computer is. That's a that, I, that's a cynical way to put it. I, I would say that um, <laughs> that largely, if you think if you think that you make a creative melody, saying this melody that I made is so amazing, maybe think about whether maybe somebody may have thought of that melody before. Maybe it was created by Bach. Maybe it was created by Mozart. Maybe we're all just drawing from the same finite set of melodies that have existed since the beginning of time. And each of us is just plucking it out of that finite set. Bach was doing that. Mozart was doing that. And so when you think about, um, and so some people might say, gosh, that sucks because now I'm, I'm not going to be able to be creative anymore. But I would say just the opposite. 
maybe if we acknowledge that we're all drawing from the same wellspring, that gives us more creativity and more ability to be able to put music out in the world. Because in the current state, or at least the state before my talk, um, you'd worry about getting sued for a song that you've never heard before in your life. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you'd be reluctant to put out music by fear that oh, somebody probably already did that, so I can't do it. So in conversely, maybe by saying, you know, the melodies here are just so unoriginal that they are uncopyrightable, that gives us more freedom uh, to not have to feel like there's a target on our backs to be able to put out more music rather than less music. Well, well, if Katy Perry can make millions, not to talk over you, Ben, but yeah, I mean, to think that a, a melody is so unoriginal and it's generating millions of dollars as a pop song. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible as it is. Well, one of the concepts he had mentioned, though, that when you go and watch your TED talk, because George Harrison, a Beatle, was traumatized by this because he got sued by the chiffons um, for a very basic melody as well. And I, I, I informed by your talk, I learned that Harrison stopped writing for a long time because he was legitimately paranoid that everything sounded like everything else. So kind of like, what was the point? Because he's just going to get sued. That's right. And so, yeah, so if you're constantly, I've heard about uh, other people that have had uh, professional musicians that before they put out an album, they have a listening party with all their friends and they say, hey, could you please tell me if this song sounds like any other that you've heard? Uh, because if it does, I'll pull it from the record. I won't put it out. Um, and so really, copyright law isn't supposed to be like that. Uh, George Harrison, uh, if George Harrison has never heard the chiffons before, they can each independently copyright a thing if they've never heard each other. Uh, but the problem with the law since the George Harrison case is that the courts have said, George Harrison, I believe that you've never heard the chiffons before. But what I think you've done is subliminally, subconsciously infringed uh, the chiffons. And so uh, that so since post that case in 1975, everyone, you know, Katy Perry testified, I've never heard Flames song before in my life. Uh, but the other side said, well, we've had three million YouTube views, so you must have heard it. Uh, and so this idea is that there's there's an implication that even if you've never heard the song before in your life, you can still get dinged for two point seven million dollars. And so really, that's the thing that was unjust that I wanted to say, no, maybe they independently came to that thing. Right. Uh, so and the thing is, juries and judges um, are often not musical, so they don't realize how finite the data set is. You know, Spahn and, and others uh, who have studied music know how finite it is. But, the you know, a jury may not have ever uh, taken a music class in their life, so they might, might not know. So that's the kind of unjustness that I was trying to fight. When you started um, looking into this, at what point did you decide that you wanted to create this tool, uh, you know, which is like a pretty simple concept, but pretty complex in execution, I would imagine. Like yeah. when did it, when did it switch from I need to do something to I need to create this uh, like algorithm basically? Uh, I, I was doing a cybersecurity engagement uh, for a large Silicon Valley company that you whose name you know that I can't talk about. But after a twelve hour day on the cybersecurity engagement, we were at the hotel uh, lounge uh, over beers, and I was talking with my collaborator Noah Rubin, who is one of the smartest programmers I've ever known. And I said, Noah, you know how we can brute force passwords? And he said, Yeah. I said, What if we could? What if we could hack music? What if we could make every single melody? And uh, and Noah said, F yeah, I think we should do that. So within uh, within a few hours, he had created a prototype that had spit out. Uh, I think 3,500 melodies. Uh, and so uh, so we kept refining that. And uh, and I thought, boy, this is kind of a fun proof of concept uh, to be able to do. But then as more I thought about it, I thought about the George Harrison case. And I thought about the problem in copyright that this might be able to solve. So the, um, so a cybersecurity engagement in front of a, a Silicon Valley company whose name I can't say uh, was the genesis of this thing. I can't believe he knocked that out in just a few hours. I'm thinking like this must have been several months of like building something. That's incredible. Noah's brilliant.
Wow. Yeah, clearly. That's amazing. Let me ask you, in, in some of the cases where these, you know, these melodies are being argued about, were they considering harmony or rhythm? Like at what was it strictly the melodic fragment that was the issue of copyright infringement or what else yeah, was almost- going on? Uh, almost all the cases, uh, like the, for example, the Katy Perry is just the melody. Uh, that's just the melody. And that's, uh, that's the focus of our, uh, of our, uh, project because, uh, already chord structure is not copyrightable. Uh, you can't copyright uh, a chord uh, pattern. You can't copyright a drum pattern. Uh, for example, the Purdy Shuffle is something that everybody uses, right? You can't copyright that. So you already can't copyright chords. You already can't copyright, um, uh, rhythms. So really the only thing left that is really copyrightable is, uh, you know, melody plus maybe chords, plus maybe rhythm, uh, right? Plus all those things. But really the melody is the, the only thing. So we're focusing on the melody um, uh, in this and largely because um, that's, uh, you know, something can have the same melody, but be a totally different song. Mm-hmm. An example I give frequently is uh, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star is the same as Baba Black Sheep, Have You Any Wool is the same as A, B, C, D, E, F, G, same melody. Uh, but different songs. Uh, I've told that to people in their 50s. Like, I had no idea that that was the exact <laughs> same melody. Uh, you know, it, I've lived 50 years. And I said, yeah, the reason you didn't realize it because they're different damn songs, <laughs> right? They're, they're different <laughs> songs. Uh, they they occupy different spaces in the brain. So even though something might have the same melody, they can be different songs. Well, one example you had used was one of my favorite examples. And I remember using, uh, I used to think it was sacrilege, but now you've kind of gone the, ex- the opposite was vanilla ice. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the, um, the melody, but it's the bass lines, the verse. And when they used to show that on television, I'd be like, oh, vanilla ice, how dare you? And like John Deacon from Queen must be angry. But it, first off, that's not a, is that considered a melody? Is that considered a baseline? Was it sampled? Like at what point should Queen give the money back to poor Vanilla Ice? Yeah, two things on that. Uh, so it would be considered a, a bass melody. Uh, that is a, is a melodic baseline is a, what it would be. So it would be the melody for the bass. And then secondly, to the question is, uh, you know, he added the the da 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 that that pickup uh, is what he added. Um, and so that is uh, what in the law uh, says that they don't have to be identical. They just need to be substantially similar. Uh, and so just adding that little pickup note uh, makes it substantially similar to the Queen one, uh, which is why it's been dinged. And so I actually use that as a response to a lot of people saying, well, Damien, your thing that you created was just quarter notes. But what if you add, uh, you know, eighth notes uh, on that? Doesn't that make it different? And I would say no, because the melodies are still substantially similar. Like if you say twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? Those are eighth notes or quarter notes, depending on your thing. But if you say twinkle, twinkle, little star, different rhythm, same melody. Um, so really, that's uh, that's really what is a melody, but just changes in pitch. Uh, and so that's what we're really cataloging is changes in pitch. And in later data sets, we actually integrate rhythm into it too. We add a beat of silence uh, so that if you add a beat of silence, that adds the rhythmic element too. So really all of these things are just mathematical parameters that you can you can add silence, you can make them longer, you can add more pitches than the one octave, you can make two octaves, you can put the black notes and the white notes. Um, it's really all just math. And uh, and what we're doing is just exhausting them to show that maybe it's just so unoriginal that you don't uh, get copyright for a melody. With what you've done and the and the work you've put together, could I now go and and just record a song that I heard on the radio and be fine? 
Absolutely not. I'm glad you asked that because the answer to that is absolutely not. You cannot do that. And, and the reason you cannot do that is because um, a song is, uh, we are really focused, our project is focused merely on the melody. Uh, but a song is more than just the melody. The song is melody plus harmony plus rhythm plus lyrics plus timbre plus arrangement plus instrumentation, right? All of these things are part of a song. Um, and so, what we're saying is if you accidentally step on a melody, uh, you might not be on the hook, especially if you've never heard that other song before. Uh, but what you're saying is, hey, can I take all the things together, uh, including lyrics and everything and put them? Uh, and the answer is no, uh, because that is the that is the copyrighted song. Uh, but the the melody alone, maybe we're saying maybe just one aspect of that, just like the chords are not uh, copyrightable, just like the rhythm is not copyrightable. Maybe the melody, too, is also not copyrightable, but the whole thing together would be yeah. copyrightable. I know it's a it's actually a pretty common songwriting practice. Uh, just in general, a lot of people will take a song, drop it in their DAW, and then go through it, and they will take the beat, and then they'll cut away the uh, the other elements of uh, of different things, and they kind of that's they'll just strip away certain things until they have something that's far enough away from the original to be like, you know, all right, I wrote my Bruno Mars style song, you know, something like that. So, at what point does that line get blurry? Like, if if they take you know a chord progression which you can't copyright and a beat that you can't copyright and you change the words to the melody, like where does that line get drawn? Yeah, Is it blurred not. like Robin Thicke? I, I, I liked what you did there. Was that subconscious? <laughs> was that a subconscious point. thing, Corey? Totally, because that totally was one intentional. Of the yes. Because he said because he said that. <laughs> I, I'm glad you made that joke because I was just about to make that very same joke. Yes. <laughs> but but it's, it's true that the blurred lines actually blurred the lines of copyright on that because um, that a song uh, that blurred lines, literally the song uh, uh, took uh, the groove from the Marvin Gaye song and be able to essentially took the extracted the groove from that song, even though it didn't copy the same melody, did not have the same bass line, did not have the same drum rhythm, uh, but it had kind of clapping, it had cowbell, right? It had aspects of it that had the groove. And so uh, so what the court, the Ninth Circuit in that case said is there was enough of those components that we talked about earlier that even though any one of them were not identical, there was a constellation of things that were close enough that they did it. Uh, but that's that causes huge uh, you know, turmoil in the industry because they said you can't copyright groove. That's that's ridiculous. Um, and so, uh, really, the the question is uh, maybe, uh, and they've maybe stepped away from that. So now that the, the uh, Ninth Circuit had the Led Zeppelin case, also happened after my uh, TED talk, uh, and also had the Katy Perry case that affirmed the district court judge earlier that says uh, that maybe have walked back from that blurred lines case to say that um, even though the constellation uh, might be copyrightable, uh, maybe any one element of those, the melody uh, would not be copyrighted. Well, does it not does it not help at all that like Pharrell and Robin Thicke went around going, yeah, we totally heard this Marvin Gaye song because I didn't know. I, I wasn't like, oh, that's Marvin Gaye. But then I heard them talking about it and I went and looked it up. I'm like, oh, yeah. they stole that. If they hadn't done that, do you think that it would have gone to court? There's a there's a saying in the law that bad facts make for bad law. Uh, and I would say that these are bad facts. That is, these are bad facts that Robin uh, Thicke and, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Robin Thicke and uh, Pharrell, Pharrell. Uh, yeah. had, uh, what they had done is is essentially before they made the song, hey, said, hey, let's make a Marvin Gaye-like song, right? Uh, that is a bad fact uh, that makes for bad law. And so that shows that A, they knew about Marvin Gaye, uh, so they have access to the copyright. B, they were trying to copy it, much like you were, Corey was talking about, you know, I essentially just use that as a template, uh, but then they changed enough to be able to try to get around it. Uh, those are bad facts. Um, which ultimately made for the bad law that is the constellation theory that maybe is getting pulled back a little bit. 
Yeah. Let me ask you a question about that. A lot of people now are sampling things in other music. And for people that maybe don't understand, like what what is the workaround for that? Because even for me, when I go into writing music, I'm like, oh, it might be cool to use a sample from this or that. H- how does that work when it comes to the law? Is that you just have to attribute some some credit or copyright to the original clip or artist? There are two copyrights. Uh, one is the copyright of the underlying composition, the songs think sheet music, and the other is the copyright to the recording of the song. And so when you're sampling, you're actually copying both. That is, you're copying the underlying composition and the recording together. Uh, that's the sample. Um, of course, uh, my project doesn't relate to the recording. It just relates to the underlying composition of the thing. So, uh, so anyway, so when you, when you copy the, um, the recording, you're copying both. That is, you're sampling something. So you would need to be able to co- pay the copyright holder, um, the full amount of licensing, uh, for that, uh, for that thing. And you would have to get permission from them before. Otherwise you risk, uh, being the defendant of lawsuit. So that's, that's the sampling. But what some people have done, uh, like for example, um, Olivia Rodrigo, uh, is alleged to have interpolated, that is, uh, taken the underlying composition and re-recorded the thing. So not taking the audio, but also just taking the underlying composition, re-recorded that composition, and then is able to do that. So um, that you would just have, you wouldn't, uh, you know, it's almost like a cover song and you would still need to get rights from that to be able to, to be able to do that. Those are, that is also copyrighted. And that goes back to Corey's, you know, here in both instances, you're taking the song, not just the melody from that song. Real quick, just on on that topic, I th- was it Def Leppard that uh, went and re-recorded like Hysteria or something because the the label, you know, owned owned the the masters and they were sick of giving them all their money, so they re-recorded it note for note. <laughs> I believe uh, also Taylor Swift. Uh, they had yeah. Taylor's Taylor's version of the songs because uh, I can't remember who the the person that bought it, but she hated the person that bought it, and so she's re-recorded the entire album and closely adhered to the sound of the original and said, "Hey, all my fans, listen to my version, not the version that the other people had. That is the audio recording because she had the underlying copyright to the song, the underlying song, uh, but not to the audio. So essentially, she just made a second audio to be able to uh, be able to do that. It's wow. crazy." <laughs> no, so the question I have now, so let's say, um, you know, I rip off a melody and I get sued and you have 8,100 melodies on, on your algorithm there that are just like my melody. How, how do you show damages? Like, can you pull up all your melodies on your thing and be like, these are all the melodies that are just like this? Um, and, and will someone ever go after you because your algorithm has written all that could ever be, but is it offending anyone? That's uh, I love that. I love that question because, yeah, so uh, I've not yet been asked to be able to be an expert in a in a court case, but I would love to be asked to do that because I could do essentially what you asked said for any given, you know, for I, I for the Katy Perry case, I could say that eight thousand one hundred twenty six times or twenty eight times. Uh, here are all the instances of the thing. So I could be able to show um, all the ways that this computer, which, by the way, is not creative. Uh, and to be copyrighted, something needs to be creative. Uh, so a uh, computer is just unoriginal as as hell. Uh, and so anyway, so I would be able to show in this testimony, uh, to your example, yeah, uh, here's all the places where this unoriginal computer spit out the same thing that this person is suing over. Uh, yes, we could do that. Uh, and would it be offensive? I guess uh, it depends on uh, if you're the defendant. Uh, no, it wouldn't be offensive because it would get you off the lawsuit, right? If you're the plaintiff, you might think about, well, gosh, maybe the thing I, I thought was really a great melody, maybe it's not that original after all, and I should stop suing people. Um, something I, I learned after my talk is that almost all of these cases are done on what's called the contingency fee. 
Uh, so what that is, is like two ways you could do a lawsuit. You could pay a lawyer uh, to go all the way to court, uh, go all the way to trial. That's way number one. Way number three is to, through contingency, where just like a personal injury suit, uh, the client doesn't pay a dime. Uh, the lawyer essentially bankrolls the entire lawsuit. And then if the lawyer wins the lawsuit for you, the lawyer gets a third of the uh, income and kind of, that kind of thing. So almost all of these cases are on contingency fee. Uh, so that is the lawyer is trying to bankroll this. And so part of my uh, incentive for this project is to maybe say to those contingency fee lawyers, maybe this isn't a good bet. Maybe you're going to lose. So maybe you should bring fewer of these lawsuits. Maybe you should think about whether the melody in your client's lawsuit is maybe so unoriginal that it doesn't it isn't copyrightable. And so if you take this on contingency, you might lose all your money because you'll get dismissed. Another concept is so so you have a computer writing melodies and people could say, oh, it's written every melody. It's creative. Is it creative in the same way that uh, that computer sentient that convinced the guy at Google? Like, is it, is it working that because you're a coder? Like, could a computer even be sentient? You say they're very boring, but according to the Google guys, they're talking to them. Right. Uh, so there's 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 two aspects of AI. Uh, ours is the stupidest version of AI, whereas it's just marching through like if a melody is do, re, mi, re, do to our our system, it's merely one, two, three, two, one. That's all it is. And so the question is, should I be able to copyright one, two, three, two, one? And the answer is no, because one, two, three, two, one is a number that is uncopyrightable. Um, so I then ask, OK, then sh if the melody is the same as that, eh, do, re, mi, re, do, should I be able to copyright that? Is that any more creative or less creative than one, two, three, two, one? And the answer is no, it's exactly the same. Uh, so that so uh, it is my machine is wholly uncreative. Uh, and I would argue that pretty much every short melody is wholly uncreative uh, because it's already it's just mathematical. I'm uh, marching through um, what's already existed since the beginning of time. In theory, could this be possible for waveforms, too, though, because digital waveforms, right, are just a series of numbers? They are, but the, the mathematics on that is much uh, higher for uh, waveforms than it is for uh, the notes on the scale. Uh, so the mathematics right. on what I've built is if you have a three note melody of an octave. Uh, so if you think do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, that's eight up. And then a three note melody, the math on that is eight to the third power. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so really eight to the third power is something like 512. So there are only 512 three note octave melodies. Um, that's remarkably finite, right? Uh, but if you take the entire spectrum of sound uh, through a waveform, that is from you know 10 uh, kilohertz all the way up to 100,000 kilohertz, um, the mathematics on that is much, much higher. Um, and so, so anyway, so that's, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to do that with sound. Um, similarly with language, uh, the mathematics on that is there's 171,000 words on this side. So if you have a three word, that's 171,000 to the third power. Um, and there are, um, there are fewer atoms on earth and there are permutations of that. So that's why language wow. is, is so much different. Interesting. Now you, you said numbers were not copyrightable, but how, what if I wanted to open a store called 7-Eleven? <laughs> that's right. Uh, two different aspects. Uh, that, that is a trademark. It is not a copyright. So a trademark is uh, ah. you can have numbers uh, because 7-Eleven is a trademark. Uh, but if they were trying to copyright 7-1-1, they would uh, not be able to copyright that. Interesting. That's that's it's such a slippery slope. I'm sure you guys is that a term we use often like this is a slippery slope. It is. Yeah. So the yeah, slippery slope is. Yeah. So if Damien, if you've uh, if you've done this, then everybody music will go to hell in a handbasket and nobody will be able to make money on music. That is the slippery slope argument that I hear a lot. Um, but I say, you know, think about it. Maybe that's one possibility, but it's very, very minute possibility. Maybe the other possibilities, we just stop suing each other over stuff that we shouldn't be suing each other over and just put more music into the world without worrying about getting targets on our back. Uh, that is yeah. a much more likely thing that is not a slippery slippery slope. 
well, people I'm, I'm use sca- your no go oh. ahead Ben sorry no go ahead well I'll say uh, the thing that scares me is that there's so many parameters you can put in as far as rhythm and timbre and all these things and I've been seeing artificial intelligent songs that like sound like real songs that you know artificial intelligent uh, all this stuff are they going to get to a point where like a, a computer could come up with master of puppets autonomously and be like hey this is pretty damn cl- I mean, it, he's not doing the down picking, but it's the same notes. Like, is that going to happen? Because it sounds to me like it's just a law of exponentiality, right? I, I think it, it will happen. And in fact, just this morning, I read about Google, um, and I'll send a, a link to this so that you can see it. Google actually created a thing where you take audio of a piano uh, that uh, you play four seconds of a piano sonata, for example, and then it will take that four seconds and extrapolate it to continue the song for the 20 seconds or 40 seconds or 50 seconds in the same style of those intro four seconds. Um, so anyway, so we're in the early days of this. And I think that uh, this is, uh, I think what you've described is probably going to happen and that uh, there is a way that machines will be able to uh, make things that are almost indistinguishable, if not totally indistinguishable from what humans will create. Um, And so this actually brings up a really good question is if I file, uh, if I use this Google thing to take four seconds and bring it into a two minute song and file it with US Copyright Office, would the Copyright Office even know that a machine created it? Uh, Because currently the Copyright Office says uh, if a machine creates it, it is not copyrightable. And there's actually a lawsuit going on right now where a robot made a piece of art, a visual art. And uh, the person said, hey, I didn't make this art. The computer did. And the copyright office said, well, because you told us that now we can't copyright it. Uh, So he's now suing, saying, no, the machine should have copyright in this thing. Um, So anyway, so the the copyright office, the only reason they knew that the machine that the machine did it and he didn't do it is because he told them. How many songs are out there where a machine, uh, so I, I, I make music behind me. There are um, melody creating algorithms where you can see, able to, be able to say, here's the melody. No, I don't want this one. How about this one? How about this one? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, so the machine spits out a melody. If I record a song with that and I file it with the copyright office, the copyright office would have no idea that a machine created that melody. And under this, this lawsuit that I talked about, you know, the, the robot made the melody. Is there any, is there any distinction in terms of like, it's almost like you're commissioning a melody from a person but mm-hmm. instead you're doing a machine so does that muck it up if you say well yeah the machine made it but it made it for me because i asked it to right i mean that's that's the real question so is uh so under the copyrights theory uh, anything created by a machine is in public domain uh it is uncopyrightable so essentially if i commission a person they would have copyright in the thing i would have to get a release from them but if i commission a machine there's nothing there, right? I, they, they can't sign a release. So I would get it for free because it's in the public domain. So the big question is, what if those two melodies were the same melody? That is, you commissioned a human that came up with the same melody that you commissioned the machine. Does that somehow make that human thing more original than the machine? And the answer is no. It's the same damn melody. It's, it's a, you, can't, you can't distinguish. And by the way, that's the same melody that shows up in my data set 8,128 times, <laughs> right? And so, so really, we're getting to the heart of what is creativity, what is originality, uh, whether made by a human or made by a machine. And I would say that let's stop thinking about what we create, that is what our melody is so individual to us, because it's not. Uh, we've made 470 billion of these things. Uh, so we probably already made the thing that you think you're so cherished. Instead, say, okay, good. Now I don't have to have this target on my back. Um, nobody, nothing is, on, nothing is original anymore. Therefore, I can make all the music I want. Okay, I've been thinking about this scenario because I'm trying to debunk it. So let's say you get a call and they say that they're a computer. It's a computer from Google that says it's sentient, which actually asks for a lawyer. Do you, I don't know if you read this article, but it asks for representation. Could you then, if you, let's say you're the computer that made that artwork 
And now it's asking for representation. Would you represent that computer? <laughs> that's a that's a really fun question. And uh, so my day job that we haven't talked about is my day job is building artificial intelligence for lawyers. And so this idea of natural language processing uh, is uh, is something that uh, I can tell you definitively that the Google AI that was referenced in that article, um, it is not sentient. Uh, what it is, is it's able to mimic human language uh, by uh, by essentially answering questions that are commonly answered uh, in this way. So uh, are you represented by a lawyer? A common answer to that is yes, I am. Right. The machine knows that that's a common answer. Therefore, it's the that's the response that it gave. Um, and so anyway, so it is not sentient. Uh, and therefore, if that that non sentient computer were to ask me to represent them, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on that note, let's talk about your day job, as you call it. It sounds to me like you have a million jobs. So I don't know how anyone can qualify as the day job. But tell us more about that. Like, what what is it like a day in in that arena? Yeah, my, my day job is with a company called Fastcase, and my data set that I pull from is 670, actually now almost 700 million judicial opinions and lawyer file documents that I use AI to be able to extract the stuff from all those 700 million documents. So the idea is that if you have a motion to dismiss for copyright infringement in the Southern District of New York, I today am going to be able to tell you that you have a 53% chance of winning or a 75% chance of winning by extracting that data from those 700 million documents. Um, soon I'll be able to say, here are the arguments that are statistically more likely to win for a copyright case in the Southern District of New York before Judge Smith. Um, and so this, uh, so it's essentially um, really all of the law is extractable and quantifiable in a way that you could be able to just make it math. And so that's what we're doing uh, by using AI to turn judicial opinions and lawyer filed briefs uh, for motions for summary judgment into, uh, into math to be able to extract it. Wow. That's amazing. That's like, so, it, so it's like in the logic class that I took in, in college, which really didn't happen because I didn't go to college. But if I went to college and I took a logic class, they say something like, you know, a proposition could either be true or false. It could be 10 million line proposition. But if you just put a tilde in front of one line, it's false. Is that kind of the same concept here? Like that no matter how exponential it can get, it's it, it can just be quantified to numbers. And that basically my entire life technically can just be quantified to, to Judge Judy sitting there with a tilde. And just going, nah, it's going to be false. 10 million things you wrote, 10 million things in that proposition, 10 million lines. All of it's true. One tilde. Done. Right. So I, I think, uh, yeah, you're really getting into a deeper philosophy than I anticipated getting into. Uh, but uh, one of the questions I'm you're sorry. asking. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I love this conversation. But what is truth is what you're asking. Uh, what is true? Yes. What is false? Uh, and that is something that the courts, you know, you spend three years of litigation and then a court uh, that is a jury decides what is truth and what is not truth. Um, and so the idea of uh, whether something is true or false to be quantifiable as, a, as far as a binary yes or no, I, I think that's almost impossible to do. Uh, so we're not doing that. So what we are instead doing is saying that of the cases that win in front of this judge, here are the arguments that are most common in, in, that, in the cases that are win. That is not to say that the arguments are right. They're just more statistically likely to win. Um, so we're not getting into the truth or falsity of it. We're just saying as to do they win or do they not win. That's wow. some what? So, what kind of music do you play, man? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a bachelor's degree. My bachelor's degree is in voice and percussion. You can see my drums behind me. So, oh, um, nice. I also play, I also play guitar and, and piano and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it turns out that music is a lot like math. Uh, and there are a lot of musicians turned lawyers that uh, say, oh, maybe I, I'm not going to be able to make any money as music. So maybe I go into lawyers. So, uh, yeah, there's there's lots of us out there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, isn't that the band Ever Everclear, right? 
Yeah, the guys from Everclear, they quit They quit their job because they, they had a law group, a law firm that was doing better. So it's like, instead of buying you a new life, they just said, I'll, I'll become a lawyer and I'll sue you all of my life. <laughs> Art Alexis, great singer, also a lawyer. Is he really? Before yeah. he became a before he became a singer, or after I, be, he became I believe a singer? I, be, I was under the impression. I guess I should probably Google this that he would tell the lawyers ahead fine. of time. Right? Yeah, I'll put a tilde. <laughs> All it takes. Well, briefly going back to the to the melody database, have have there been instances of people using this as a creative tool? Like, is this something where you would encourage people to go in and, and find a bunch of melodies, and therefore you have the start of a song? Or is uh, so, it not yeah, designed that way? It's not designed that way, and, and largely, I mean, we could make that, and we've talked about maybe you know you enter in. Uh, you know, first few notes, and it'll tell you all the you know all the other notes that might come after it. Um, but really, uh, really, the important thing is not the execution of what we've built, but the idea of what mm -hmm. we've built. Right? The, if I can describe two sentences, you know, I do re mi fa so la ti do, and all of the black and white notes on the keyboard. Um, we've repeated those twelve times, and we've exhausted the entire data set of that. I just described that to you, and you pretty much get uh, what that entire database is. Um, so you don't really need to use my tool, right? Because you you get it, right? You could say, okay, quarter notes, that twelve quarter notes, and then you do an octave with the black and the white notes on the Wait keyboard. Wait a minute, is this is this what they call principle? Principle, not like pal, like not like the principal, but the with, with the P L E at the end, right? That's, that's what right. Th you're talking it, about. That's right. Principle. It, it is that is the idea, and then this uh, the reason that uh, you know the fact that you can get it in a couple sentences without actually having to look at the database is mm -hmm. the reason that I've not been asked to be an expert in any expert witness uh, cases, and that's the reason that Katy Perry has incited me. That's the reason that Led Zeppelin has incited me. That's the reason that Ed Sheeran have incited me, even though they've essentially taken the ideas that I've said that maybe the melodies aren't copyrightable, um, and so the it's the principle, right? It is the idea that maybe that data set is uncopyrightable. Maybe they are so unoriginal. That they are not copyrightable. Um, you don't need to cite me to do that. You need. You don't need to look at my data to do that. You can just know that principle of what that data set looks like. Make that argument in front of the court, and then the court decides that. But does that get under your skin that they don't cite you? I, I mean, that, I, I would like for Ed Sheeran to buy me a beer. That would be nice. Uh, or, or, or Katy Perry, if Katy Perry, if she you're a lawyer, if you're listening to this. Dollars. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think it would. I would love to be able to talk with uh, Katy Perry or with Ed Sheeran or with Led Zeppelin, any of the people that I may have helped, um, because it's. I think that that message to be able to go to the musicians is, you know, I can accidentally land on a melody and get in hot water. Maybe this message should be uh, further. Uh, pushed forward as something that should not be ashamed of, uh, but should be something that is just a part of making music. Yeah. Do you think that melody with rhythm paired will always be copyrightable? Or do you think eventually that will be something that could be incorporated into an algorithm and generated? I mean, with with rhythm, I, I can incorporate that today in my machine, right? So, so it is it is today able to be done. Whether they should be copyrighted or not, you know, that's um, the twinkle, twinkle, little star um, is the same uh, is Bob Black, Black Sheep, have you any wool, right? So they have you any wool. That's a different rhythm than with little star, right? There's mm -hmm. uh, eighth notes versus quarter notes, um, but they're the same melody. And so really, I, when people talk about rhythm, uh, rhythm doesn't matter to copyright, right? Because you have you any wool is the same as little star, right? Even though mm -hmm. they're different uh, rhythms, they're the same melody because they're substantially similar. Um, so I would say, yeah, that rhythm is really a red herring. Uh, rhythm doesn't matter as much as the changes in pitch, uh, which are really the thing that we're covering in our project. Yeah. What happens when I have my computer, I commission my computer to write a song? And it's a computer, so it can't be copyrighted. But then it turns out that autonomous from that Let's say John Lennon wrote the same song as my computer did, completely 
unaware that had no access. Maybe it did because it's a computer. So how do I verify that? Can can I now be sued by the John Lennon estate because my can I just say my Apple wrote it? That's I, I love that question because it goes to a question that I'm often asked that says, um, you know, yeah, you created every melody that's ever been. Therefore, your machine has infringed the copyright of every melody that's ever been. Aren't you worried, Damien, about getting sued for that? And my answer to that every time is, God, I hope so. I hope I get sued uh, because then I'd be able to make an argument in front of the court that so you, the person who sued me, want to get a monopoly for your life plus 70 years for something my computer shit out at 300,000 melodies per second. I don't know if I can swear on this, but you I absolutely, absolutely can. <laughs> okay. So my computer shits this thing out at 300,000 melodies per second. You want to get a monopoly for your life plus 70 years for this thing. Uh, and by the way, my computer's never heard your damn song. Uh, my computer is just going through math. So really what you're arguing is that you are so proud of your mathematically uh, spit out thing that you're going to sue me over it. I would love to make that argument in front of a court and for a court to say, yeah, Damien's did not have access to your stupid ass song. And by the way, your stupid ass song is a fact that is uncopyrightable. I would love to have that precedent. But don't, but don't you have to prove damages and what damages are your computer doing with that, you know, the algorithm? I mean, it does exist, but I mean, don't I have to prove that you've inf hurt me somehow beyond just stealing my intellectual property? The, the stages of copyright are question number one, is it copyrightable in the first place? Question number two, did the other person have access to the copyright? And question number three is, was there a substantial similarity? And then only after you get those things, question number four is how much were you damaged? by these mm -hmm. things. Um, so really, I'm going to question number one. Is it even copyrightable in the first place? Um, damages don't even come into play. If the answer to the question, uh, answer to question number one is no, it's uncopyrightable. Do not pass go, do not collect three, $2.7 million, right? <laughs> uh, really, that's, uh, so, the, so really mine goes to copyrightability in the first place. And so damages doesn't even play it into it. But if it did go that far, yeah, I've made $0 from this thing. And the machine has no incentive. You know, I'm, there's, uh, there's no damages. Uh, there's no, uh, there is substantial similarity, but it's uncopyrightable. In the first I feel place. like all these damages are coming from the lawyers that you're taking all their cases away from. Have you, <laughs> have you got any <laughs> backlash about that? I, 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 a bit. So I was on a panel with um, uh, the Pepperdine uh, Law School had in invited me on a panel with a Ninth Circuit judge and uh, an expert who's, I'm not going to say her name because I, I'm not going to say her name, but she's represented a lot of these uh, these plaintiffs who have been suing other people. Uh, she represented the Marvin Gaye estate. So anyway, so um, uh, when I, when the judge asked me, uh, Damien, I, I don't know you. What have you done? And I described the thing that I did. And uh, she said, well, why, why are you doing this? I said, you know, to protect, you stole my melody defendants. And so the judge said, oh, you're causing trouble. And I said, Your Honor, I'd like to think that it's good trouble that I'm causing. And when I described this, the the expert that's been, uh, you know, representing the artists that have been suing other people, uh, she seemed to be a bit annoyed, like I'm I'm eating her lunch. Uh, but really, I, I would say that I'm not eating her lunch. I'm just uh, taking away a income stream that should not be an income stream. People should not be suing over this. Have Have you seen the movie Terminator 2? I have. Okay, so you know how the guy's like creating the Terminator and then he, and then Arnold Schwarzenegger goes back in time and shoots him because he wants him to die, hopefully, so he doesn't create the Terminator, but he doesn't know at the time that he's going to ruin the whole planet. Do you think you could be that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, well, I, I would say, why? Uh, so what's the what's the bad outcome from what I'm going to do? I mean, we've already talked about the slippery slope of am I going to terminate copyright as we exist? No, because we talked about the bundle of melody plus harmony plus rhythm plus lyrics, right? That's your song. That song is not affected one bit by my uh, by my project. The only thing my project affects is the melody part that I'm saying maybe that's not copyrightable, much like the chord structure is already not copyrightable. 
almost much like the drums are already not copyrightable. The song, totally copyrightable, but each one of the things maybe is not. If you take any one in isolation. So the essence, so I just, I'm trying to understand what's actually copyrightable at this point. So is it like saying, I'm going to copyright your essence? Like, that's what it sounds like. It is a very philosophical thing. Like, what's the one true thing? It's the copyright. So what is, what is it actually protecting? Because, I mean, we can't copyright rhythm. We can't copyright I mean, Melody sounds like you've debunked it for everybody on such a drop the mic level that no one even has to quote you, which is crazy, <laughs> um, which, uh, by the way, touche, because I, I think that that's incredible to me. At what point can I actually say, hey, man, you know, Vanilla, I stole my song with David Bowie. A, a good answer to your question is uh, let's think about blues. OK, uh, blues, same chord structure for the blue. You have the blues pattern, right? Blues chord structure, um, same dri- uh, rhythm, right? Same drum beat, pretty much. You know, backbeats on two and four, right? Um, same structure, right? They, you have the A, you know, 12 bar blues or the eight bar blues, right? So you have the same structure. Um, is a blues song copyrightable? Yeah, right. I mean, that that you have you have maybe the melody, right? But maybe, you know, if you listen to blues songs, pretty much the melody is all kind of sound a lot alike, right? Because they're all within the same chord structure, right? Uh, you might have a little variation here and there, but uh, the odds of overlapping the melody in a blues song is really, really high. So what you're asking is, is there any copyrightability in a blues song? Sure, right? Uh, you have different lyrics, you have different you know, instrumentation. You certainly have the audio portion, right? I talked about the songwriter, the, the underlying song versus the audio. The audible certainly is copyrightable. The lyrics are certainly copyrightable. Uh, and the entire piece, the melody plus harmony plus uh, drums, etc., all of those things are copyrightable. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's all a way of saying that, um, yeah, there's uh, there is a uh, a way that you can think about the blues to say there's a lot of these things that are just repeated ad nauseum. Um, but any one song in that, even though everything else is repeated ad nauseum, um, there is a little twinkle of copyrightability that you could be able to say this song is copyrightable, even though everything else is repeated. Are you a fan of Ray Kurzweil? I am. Yeah. So do you believe that uh, that we're basically going to merge with intelligent technology as opposed to because right now it sounds like you're creating the intelligent technology that could destroy us. But at some point, am I going to have your algorithm in my brain? <laughs> I, I, if you'd asked me that at age 25, I would have said, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I'm now 47 <laughs> years old and I, I, I'm almost uh, certain after watching a bunch of Black Mirror episodes that that is not true, uh, that, that that really t- for us to be able to merge, uh, you have these uh, we have brains, right? Our brains are made of out of organic compounds, right? Uh, and yes, they contain they contain data. Um, but once those organic compounds die, um, there is no uploading that to the uh to the machine right you cannot merge that with the machine uh because the organic compounds that we call ourselves die um so the best we can have is kind of a a facsimile of me that is something that much like the computer that thinks it's sentient that google thing that you talked about earlier right um it it sounds like it's sentient it looks like a duck it talks like a duck but it's not a duck, right? So you can uh, make a, a living deep fake of me. So you could basically grow me in a test tube. You could download all of the zeros and ones in my brain and make me think the test tube me that I'm actually me, but I'm not me. I'm just the guy in aliens that has all the white stuff come out afterwards. And like, he's fake. That's right. Your organic, uh, your organic cells will die and you will go away, even though a facsimile of you, a deep fake of you will continue. Horrifying. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then the irony of all of this is that we, there's actually different parallel universes right now, which statistically determine that there are going to be these other permutations of exactly what's happening, happening in other universes. So can we can we technically oh copyright other 
universe, <laughs> universal ideas. Well, I'm saying because it sounds like it's almost the same concept of your algorithm, except that Stephen Hawking told me about it. <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, that uh, I, I would hate to be the argue, uh, the lawyer arguing. Well, in a parallel universe, uh, here's the copyright. <laughs> I, I think that a judge might raise their eyebrow. Uh, well, not to I had to push gears, that to the limit. I, I know. You, he always has to take us off the rails. I want to come back <laughs> and ask, and this, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse, but um, about songwriting, because, um, well, we all play in a project together. And, you know, you said chord progressions are not copyrightable. When it comes to, I think a lot of people wonder about songwriting contributions and publishing in the world of music. You know, what what goes on, let's say, you know, you're playing over a chord progression and you're a guitar player and you do some sort of solo. Is, is it the person that wrote the chord progression or the person that wrote the guitar solo? Who has some sort of entitlement to what's going on? I'm just always curious because now, you know, so many people come into rooms and they're, sh- you know, shooting off ideas and writing music together. How do you know when you have a claim to something or when, you know, you're just, you're not a part of that? Sure. Uh, I love that question. And that's one of the reasons that uh, there are so many songwriters these days uh, in uh, in songs. You, know, you used to have three songwriters. Now you have 12. And the idea is that uh, the reason for that is what you just described. If any a creative contribution that you provide, and again, remember, there's the underlying composition and there's the audio recording of that composition. So um, if you contribute a, a lick on the guitar that's recorded, Right. It's it's uh, then recorded. Um, there's a question as to whether that's part of the underlying song. That is a mm-hmm. part of the sheet music. You know, if somebody if you were to uh, submit the sheet music of the thing to the copyright office, would it contain that guitar lick? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably a, an author of that underlying song. If it's not included in the sheet music, maybe it's not part of the underlying composition. Maybe it is. That's something that argues uh, lawyers would argue about. Uh, but it is certainly part of the audio recording. Uh, so you are certainly an author of something that uh, creatively created the audio recording. So that's the reason why so many uh, labels and so many bands say, okay, if you're a session musician, uh, you're going to sign this work for hire agreement, saying that right. even though you're a, an author of the thing, um, you're going to assign all of your rights that you have to this, uh, whether it's the sheet music or whether it's the the, uh, the audio recording. Uh, you're assigning all the rights to me so that I, as a band, can get it and you as an individual don't. Interesting. Yeah, because so I'm a string player. I play violin and often we, you know, I get called in for studio work and sometimes it is a work for hire and other times it's like, no, here's a fee, but you're not signing something. So I've always been curious about what sort of entitlement people have, because it's a question that a lot of musicians don't ask. They just figure if I got paid, you know, that's it. I'm not a part of this. So and I think a lot of people probably don't register for certain things that they may be entitled to. Sure. And I, I'm going to answer this by the given the lawyerly preface that I'm not your lawyer and I'm not course, anyone yeah. on this front of the podcast <laughs> lawyer. So I and I, I want to avoid any malpractice by saying, you know, ask your ask your lawyer for the your individual thing. I'm not giving legal advice here. Of course, so yeah. all that said, general principles of this is that, um, you know, if you depends on the country you're in, right, uh, the, the United States versus the UK versus, you know, Germany, et cetera, each of the countries have different. But at least in the United States, um, then, uh, you know, uh, as soon as you record it to disc, right, it's copyrighted automatically. And you are the author of whatever you record to disc, and you're arguably the cop- the author as soon as you contribute it in the session, and it makes its way into the song if it's the underlying song. Um, so all of those are to say that um, yeah, unless you sign something to the otherwise, uh, you don't need to formally do anything. You are automatically the author of those things. Siobhan, are you are you sitting there thinking that you're going to get some of that sweet sweet Queen's Gambit money? Is that <laughs> <laughs> no? Actually, that wasn't even what I was thinking about. I'm just thinking about you should the- be. In the community of string players, for example, I, you know, we all do gigs and we all do recording things. And I've I've always thought that people just don't understand and I don't understand fully what what goes on and how it works. So I I think it's a very sort of like nebulous area of the music industry that a lot of recording artists and. And just so Damien has some background, 
I remember Queen's Gambit came out and Trevon plays a lot of the solo violin in that. And she she told us, she's like, oh, I went to somebody's uh, apartment and recorded some things a few years ago. And then it shows up on the number one show in the world. <laughs> Should she be suing someone? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to give legal advice on this Right, show. right, right. We can't give legal advice. But, but I will say that what, what that scenario puts out is something that a lot of people criticize my project saying, you know, the only people that sue over You Stole My Melody are the Ed Sheeran's of the world or the Katy Perry's of the world, the ones that actually make it to the top or the Queen's Gambit of the world, right? Uh, so if that hadn't made it to the top, you wouldn't even think about suing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so a lot of uh, criticism in my project is like, hey, you're trying to defend the richest of the rich rather than defending the, the mom and pop songwriters. Uh, but my argument, uh, counter argument is, uh, you know, any one of us could make a major hit, right? So any of us, so really it should, should the law depend on uh, whether you are the Queen's Gambit or whether you're Ed Sheeran? Or should the law just depend on uh, what is the principle that is, is to be done? And so all of that's to say that um, the law, uh, you know, Siobhan, you you may have, uh, you know, not have given it a second thought had it not risen to the heights of the Queen Gambit, right? Uh, but now that it has, you think, oh, there's maybe dollar signs there. Um, but really, uh, I think everybody should be thinking on first principles, you know, what are my rights at the bottom, um, just in case it goes to the top. Yeah. Full disclosure, that was just my joke. I'm Siobhan had nothing to do with that. And she, I'm sure she's very, con she's very content with what she, she She's like, I love this. I love the guy that wrote it. I'm thinking about that as her friend going, where can we go on vacation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Siobhan's exactly. nice. She's she's very she's very kind. She would never do that. In fact, if if that's true, she could probably sue Corey and I. Um, not that there's any. Oh you can't get water from the stone. Yeah, good I luck. Mean, that, that's, good luck, though. <laughs> well, but as a, as a musician, I like to give credit where credit's due. And you know, for me, I didn't have to write any of that. I just got to show up and play on something, and my name got to be in it. And I'm like, he did all the hard work, so I'm not even looking to get anything out of that. I mean, the composition was was really where it was at. That's right. So of the two, right, you didn't contribute to this. You just contributed to the the, the mm -hmm. audio portion of it, uh, which you still have rights in the audio portion of it. But yeah, you would not have the underlying songwriting royalties uh, that you would. Uh, so if somebody else covered that song, right, uh, the songwriter gets a portion of that. But the artist that uh, that recorded it, you on the recording would not get any of that because you're not the songwriter. We got just a few minutes left. Uh, I'd love to just touch base a little bit about the music side of, of what you do because you know we are musicians and a lot of the guests we have on the show are, are professional musicians and stuff uh i noticed in some of the searches that you have like uh some songwriting website things here do you do like uh songwriting for people yeah, they, they, so there was a, a thing called Songfinch uh, that it was a really fun idea. It's almost like Uber for songwriting, where if, oh. uh, if you're, it's your mom's birthday and you, uh, you, uh, you, you're not musical, but you want a song to sing for your mom or to be recorded. Uh, Songfinch essentially, uh, I as a non-musical person go to Songfinch, pay 125 bucks, and then somebody like me writes a song uh, with you know, you say your mom's Jane, and I really loved when I was six years old. You took me out to the park and did this. Uh, you essentially create a song uh, for that. Person person's mom and you uh as a as a songwriter i think you get half of the of the royalties from this and i as a musician get to be able to keep uh that uh, i get to keep copyright in the thing that i make so if i want to re-record the song with different lyrics i could be able to do that so um i thought i i don't write as much music as i i would want to make and this was almost a vehicle to be able to say uh, maybe i write this schmaltzy song for hire right to be able to uh, uh be able to be a, essentially a prompt to write me, have me write more songs. And maybe some of those songs might turn its way into a song that I write. Uh, so anyway, so Songfinch, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm technically on their roster. I've only done two songs for them thus far, and I'll probably be writing more for them. Uh, but then I, I do a lot of covers uh, because I, I figured nobody wants to hear what a 47-year-old dude uh, is, uh, is recording in his, uh, in his third floor attic to where I am right now. Uh, but everybody loves, uh, everybody loves the songs that everybody loves. So I do a lot of covers. 
Well, that's awesome. Wow. It's amazing that you have time for all of these things <laughs> where we're musicians full time and sometimes we can barely get it together. <laughs> it turns out that pandemics give people lots of free time. Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the bottom line for me is what's the goal with this? Is it just basically so that people don't feel like, you know, traumatized like George Harrison where, oh, my God, I wrote something because Corey and I have sat and, and, and written stuff and been like, does that sound like this or that? And now for me, I go, I actually mentally go, oh, well, that's the trick that Queen used. They went to major to minor. Or that's the trick that, you know, I liked about the Beatles. And instead, I've I've extrapolated some of these techniques, but I, I, I wield it like a spell more than just plagiarizing it is i mean at what again where's the line for that and then what's the the ultimate goal of uh, you said you're protecting us but from what and how yeah so I, 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 that is one of the most insightful and best questions i've i've been asked and i say the answer is twofold uh, answer number one is i want to reduce the number of lawsuits i want to reduce the number of uh, you stole my melody suits because i think they're counterproductive and they should not happen because essentially it tamps down creativity rather than uh, encouraging creativity like copyright law is supposed to do uh, if you're scared about getting sued you're going to release less music so number one i want there to be less uh, less fewer lawsuits um well, and thing number two is more philosophical that um, we should, I think about that we as musicians should really think long and hard as to what makes us uh, a creative. Um, is what makes us creative the mathematical uh, do, re, mi, re, do that we put out in the world that my machine can shit out at 300,000 melodies per second? Is that what makes us creative? Or is the, what makes us creative the ache of our voice, the, the beautifully lilting violin that Siobhan just plays? Right, the really wailing guitar that this person does. Um, these are the things that make us human, and these are the things that make art worth art. Right, that's the that's the our soul. Right, our soul is not do re mi re do that a mathematical computer shits out. Our soul is in the humanity that we put into the thing. So I think we should think about what makes us creative. It's not the mathematics that my all the music project did, and so we shouldn't have a monopoly on those mathematics. We should instead have a monopoly on our souls. Uh, and those souls, our machines will never be able to replicate. And that's what makes us musicians in the first place. So, so is this a bioethical question now and not not just a law question? Because it sounds like you're, you're, you're drawing a line of what is the soul and, you know, what brings the humanity to things. And we're talking about how a computer can come up with the exact same thing. Um, and it's not, you know, same thing with the artwork. The guy had to tell them because they couldn't distinguish the guy at the copyright office that, oh, a computer did this. Is someone actually going to quantify what the soul is so that we can sue people about them now? Well, it, you're really getting to the question of why do we have copyright in the first place? And the reason the founders made copyright in the first place is to incentivize humans to be able to make more music or art mm -hmm. or literature, right? So it's an incentive. There's an exchange saying we as the government will give you a copyright for life of the author plus 70 years currently. Uh, in exchange for that monopoly, you'll say, okay, now it's worth it for me to be able to make this music. Um, a machine doesn't need that incentive, right? The machine just shits out 300, uh, 470 billion melodies and counting. Uh, it doesn't need incentive. And so really what you're asking is, you know, the humanity is the incentive that what do I as a human need incentive to be able to do? And I as an artist need to make art. You as artists need to make art. That's the humanity. That's the incentive that we have to do. And we, we want to be able to make money from that art. Uh, and so I'm uh, really the question my project is asking is, should I make money from the mathematical uh, thing that is cranked out um, or should I make money from the humanity that I put into my song, the wail of my voice, the, the beautiful lilt that I have? And I think that's where we should make money, not from the mathematics. That's yeah, incredible, absolutely. man. Yeah. Damien, thank you for, for taking the time to hang out with us. This has been, once again, uh, 
way insightful, more insightful than our show has ever deserved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, can you tell everyone, just anyone that wants to find out more information, uh, where should they go to check out uh, your project? Sure. It's uh, allthemusic.info uh, is the name of our, our website. Uh, from there, you're able to download all 470 billion if you want. Uh, you're also able to download the algorithm, the, the machine that is uh, created. It's all free and open source. And you're able also to read a frequently asked questions that was originally, I was originally going to be uh, creating a law review article, but instead I just made it a fact on my website that you can read and see all the legal arguments. So if you, if you say, you know, I have a lawyer friend who said that Damien Reel's thing is full of shit. Um, have them read the fact, the frequent last questions, and the lawyer people will probably have fewer objections to what I'm describing. Nice. Great Do you see who, how many people actually download your 470 billion and do you put them on like a do not fly list? Uh, the beauty is that it's all, it's stored on the Internet Archive, uh, so it's it's stored externally. Uh, so that way, if I die or Noah dies, it'll go on for perpetuity. So I don't see who downloads it, uh, but I will I will be happy with if it's downloaded a gazillion times. How big is that anyway? Can I go to Best Buy and get a 14 terabyte hard drive and get this thing on my spinner? Uh, uh, two, two terabytes uh, is all that. Uh, 68 billion fits on two terabytes. So uh, the 470, uh, I think we have a eight terabyte. Uh, we can compress a lot of the things. So it's uh, it's not very, not very big. And where, and where does that number come from? The 470 billion? Is that is that everything? That's, that's, it? A, that's all. Well, it's all the things. There's some duplication in there because we started with a major scale. Then we went to the chromatic scale and then we put rhythms in there and we put harmonies. Uh, we put rests and uh, we put all, all sorts of things. So anyway, so there's some duplication, but it's all MIDI. Uh, so really, it's, it's reflected in MIDI. Is there someone that can go into like a Berkeley school of music class and be like, there's only 467 billion melodies. That's the actual number like you have. A, is there there's a number There's an actual finite number? There's a finite. So yeah, like, just like I said, you know, eight to the third power is 512. That's a finite number. But then you know, how about then you say, well, how about four? And then you say that's a different number. Okay, how about a hundred? Okay, that's a different number. How about a million? That's a different number, right? So yes, it's uh, you know, it's infinite in that you could have a, a gazillion uh, note melody. Uh, but it is finite that if you say any three note melody that is a diatonic scale, there's only 512 permutations of them. Amazing. Incredible. Ben, with all thank, the yes, thank, thank, the, thank the Lord for you, man, because I, I got to tell you that like my my Adderall brain just goes on this hamster wheel cycle of like, but this, but this, but this. But I have to say, you've demystified copyright for me for at least this moment in time. So for that, I thank you. I mean, it's like Descartes. Does it exist beyond this? Like, will my brain forget it? It probably will. But for this moment, I feel like I understand at least, uh, uh, again, a finite amount of copyright law. Well, I'm, I'm grateful you guys had me on. And I, I get interviewed a lot, but very rarely is it with musicians like you. So uh, being able to ask these musical questions are, is really a treat for me. So thank you so much for having no, me on. Thank you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to have you. Really. <laughs> and uh, thank and you any, so much. if any time any new developments come up, you're welcome to come back anytime. We definitely appreciate it. Uh, you know, we'll have the links to everything in the description. And uh hope you have a good one, man. Likewise. Check out so 2020-d.com. We'll see you next week. Subscribe. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 38, featuring Drew Ann Rosenberg, filmmaker and TV producer. Check it out. In television, the writer is king. So the executive producer in television is the, is the head writer, basically the showrunner. So it's really a writer's medium, and the directors who show up are really guest stars or guest directors who come in and basically have to articulate in a clever and creative way what the show is. The characters are already established, the visuals are kind of, you know, this is the way we shoot. Shameless, we did a lot of handheld, I mean, that's kind of the style of the show. So you're not coming in and remaking the wheel, you're coming in and, and 
facilitating an episode and making it clever and good, but staying within what they want. And, and the writer of that episode sits on set and gives the director notes. So it's a very different process. You know, when you're doing a movie, the director is king or queen. <laughs> and um, it, it's really up to them to put the creative, you know, to put the, the story together any way they want. Now, a lot of times when you go into the editing room, the producers will have final cut. So the film gets taken, they get a, a number of days that they're allowed to cut and then the producers can come in and change it around, you know, depending again on the dynamic. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.